Welcome to Tribal Theocrat Live. I'm Christian Gray. Today is July 6th. Actually, it's July 7th in South Africa, 8,000 miles away. And we have on the line right now, Jan and Abby. Welcome, gentlemen. Thank you, Christian. It's a great honor for me to be on the show. Um, this morning, actually, in South Africa, it's uh, 4.30 uh, Sunday morning in South Africa, and somehow I got the time change mixed up. I actually thought it would be 9.30 now in the U.S., so... Yeah. Yeah, that's why we're late. Oh, that's okay. I, we got confused. It's uh, easy. Hi, Christian. Uh, Hi. This is Jan. Good morning. And uh, uh, I would like to thank you as well for being on the show, and uh, I want to thank you for this effort that you do... Uh, uh, to restore sanity in Western thought, uh, and it is for, uh, it's an honor for us. Uh, if you if you will allow me, I didn't check this with you, but uh, if it's okay with you, I just want to say a short prayer for this discussion. Is that okay? Yes, please. Okay, uh, Heavenly Father, please bless this discussion uh, so that it will be to your honor and glory for your name's sake. Amen. Amen. Okay. Well, I guess we'll get, get started with the show. It's about the contemporary political situation um, out there regarding the Boers and the covenantal curse. Adi, do you want? To, first of all, I want to get the names right. It's it's Jan and Adi. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, um. Yeah, Adi. Yeah. Adi. It's a uh, emphasis on the A. Yeah. Yeah, and Jan is correct. Yeah, Jan is fine, Jan. Yeah. Okay. Well, you're welcome to start us off with an introduction to the situation out there, Adi. Yeah, um, I thought I'd just... Um, the show will be uh, uh, focused on uh, the history of the Burr people and the political history from a covenantal and a theological perspective. Um, that will be the main discussion, but I, I thought just to put um, the Bur history into uh, into perspective, I'd start off with the contemporary situation that uh, that we're finding ourselves in, and I'm sure that um, many. I think we're cutting out now. I'm going to call them on the landline. So, in one second, folks. Okay. So first of all, just to discuss the contemporary political situation. Um, one has to say that um, the contemporary situation of the Afrikaners or uh, Boers is nothing short of horrendous. Whites total less than 9% of South Africa's population of 51 million, and Afrikaners make up just over 5% of the country's population. So, I mean, we're a very, very small minority, minority in a majority black country which in itself is a curse. Um, however, the Afrikaner today is experiencing particular hardship with regard to his political situation, as he is in the process of being systematically disenfranchised in a country that owes its economic development primarily to white Afrikaners. Um, so I think you can, you can see uh, a lot of similarities with your own situation in the U.S. as well. Um, that white people are experiencing there. Um, the governing party of South Africa, the African National Congress, is a black revolutionary Marxist party 
And as we know all too well, all people under Marxist rule always suffer. So it's not just the whites of this country that suffer. You know, all the people of the country suffer terribly under this Marxist government, um, which is characterized by their socialist economic policies, uh, government corruption, and poor service delivery. However, whites do have it the worst of the lot, as strong affirmative action employment policies, black economic empowerment schemes, and land distribution policies, or at least so-called land distribution policies of the government, literally robbed the white man of his land and his jobs. Today, nearly half a million poor whites live in squatter camps in the most horrendous conditions. Now, that's half a million whites of, um, of, of about four million whites in total living in South Africa. That is, they are literally living in, in, in extreme poverty and, um, uh, you know, struggling to, to survive on a daily basis. Um, in a country that is also renowned for violence and where over 50 murders are committed every day by black and other colored people, the brood also faces genocide. The brutal murders of tens of thousands of birds have been committed since the ANC came into power two decades ago. We've also got very strict gun laws, and our police force is corrupt. I'm totally corrupt. I mean, it's it's much worse than uh, than you guys have it in the U.S. I believe um, they're totally inequipped to do their jobs, and they often openly discriminate against white people. Actually, um, in song and dance. The leaders of the governing ANC verbally encouraged the slaughter of the white bird people. Um, Krishna, I don't know if you're familiar with the famous Kill the Bird song. I'm not. Um, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a song that originated out of the uh, black, a, uh, well, out of the ANC's um, struggle against apartheid. And... Um, uh, I don't know the exact ly- lyrics, but the uh, core of the song is, you know, uh, to the song's title is, as well is Kill the Bird. And uh, it's a song sung by uh, by all the leaders of, of the uh, governing ANC. Um, Nelson Mandela is famous for, for participating in singing it. Our current president, Jacob Zuma, sings it. Um, and you know, thereby, you know, they openly encourage the uh, the slaughter and uh, and genocide of our people. Yes, uh, uh, let me I just interrupt you here. Uh, 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 actually, they they are more than one song. Uh, yeah. They, 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 uh, Jacob Zuma, the current president, uh, sang another one. Uh, bring my, bring machine. my machine gun. Uh, which, yeah. In which he also sings about killing white people. Yeah, yeah. We, we will kill the, the whites. We will kill the Boers. Uh, uh, we, uh, me, me and my cabinet, uh, which means the other cabinet ministers, will kill the Boers. And, uh, they, they not only uh, uh, sing it uh, in, a, in an ordinary way, they at, uh, actually encourage the black, uh, uh, what you call it, gangsters uh, uh, who, 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 who go from... Uh, home to home to murder and rape and, and uh, uh, torture white yeah. people in the uh, most brutal yeah, way. Yeah. Yeah. 
so that's that's bad. Oh, I just wanna wanna make a quick note. Um, our ethnic name is actually pronounced Boer. Um, and it's actually the Dutch word for farmer. Uh, it's because of our agrarian roots and our agrarian lifestyle that we call ourselves Boers. Um, so yeah, that's actually what it what it means. Okay, maybe just say. Uh, yeah, uh, in, originally it was called tracker boer, because we migrating boers. Yeah, which which means migrating boers because we kept fleeing from the government in the Cape. First from the Dutch government and then uh, eventually from the uh, from the uh, British government. Uh, so we were migrating farmers, which is tracker boer, and uh, in. Uh, uh, it ended up uh, just being Buddha or Booths. Yeah. So yeah, um, yeah. So the the uh, people in power, the authorities, openly sing about killing us. And um, on top of this, the the Booths face a very real and raging spiritual battle, as our heritage and religion is under constant siege from those in power. White guilt and Christian guilt are constantly propagated by the media. And this has infiltrated virtually every Afrikaner at home via the newspapers and television. The Christian institutions we built up in this country have been successfully secularized alarmingly fast, and now the government is even starting to persecute the few churches in this country that still oppose their sodomite agenda. Churches and private property owners who in any way discriminate against sodomites are now being taken to court. And a local evangelist Bible school in my hometown was recently found guilty of human rights violations because, because of the fact that they refused enrollment to sodomites who were unwilling to change their lifestyle. So it's, a, um, it's in my hometown. It was an incident recently. Um, it's a Pentecostal Bible school, really. And, I mean, they don't refuse entrance to sodomites, just sodomites that, you know, don't acknowledge their sin. And uh, they have literally been found guilty of human rights violations by the South African Human Rights Commission, and now they have to attend uh, sodomy sensitivity lectures for six months. And, you know, so it's terrible that, that a private Bible school, you know, can even be persecuted or is persecuted by the current government. Um, there is also no way out of the current mess um, within the current political system, because despite being a, less, a little less radically left, the official opposition to the ANC, the Democratic Alliance led by the Jewish Helen Zeller, also support all of the above-mentioned um, anti-Christian, anti-white government policies. The Afrikaner activist Dan Ruet. I don't know if you're familiar with with the name Dan Ruet, Christian. No, sir. Uh, he wrote, I think he wrote the preface to one of Jared Taylor's books, if I'm not if I'm not mistaken. Um, he wrote a good article recently of how the political uh, framework of South African politics is constantly moving further to the left. Um, as the official opposition take the liberty of advocating more and more leftist policies uh, as the government party becomes more radically 
revolutionary. There is hardly any organization in the country that advocates Christian traditionalism and nationalism, uh, which are ideals which have been deliberately removed from the political framework of this country. So our uh, political situation uh, is, is totally hopeless at this stage from, from a human perspective. Um, all, all the things I mentioned now is to me a clear judgment from God on the apostasy of our people. And my father and I will use this time to explain why it is to be understood as such. Uh, the Boers, traditionally a devout Christian people, are not only under siege from the authorities, but also our churches have committed treason against our people as cultural Marxism is being preached from the pulpits across the country. This has had a devastating effect on our people's morality as confessing Christians now not only embrace, but also advocate not only um, race mixing, but, but the sodomite agenda. Uh, I spoke about it with my wife the other day, and uh, between us, we knew more than a dozen people who had, you know, as they call it, come out of the closet within the past couple of years. Mainstream Christianity in South Africa today is nothing but egalitarianism, and when sodomite unions were legalized in South Africa in 2006, there was hardly any public opposition to it, like we've seen recently in, in France, for example. In violation of the Fifth Commandment, the younger generation are told to shun their ancestors and embrace the ideals of Nelson Mandela, South Africa, and unfortunately, most of them do. I get saddened when I see my own people Africanized in order to fit into the new system. One example of how this... Um, of this is uh, how acceptable it has become among white Afrikaners to bribe and be bribed, um, since it is, after all, the African way. But it is most certainly not the Christian way, and it's not something that our godly ancestors would have tolerated. Even abortions, um, which were legalized on demand by Mandela in 1997, have become all too common among our young people. And most of them attend the government schools, where oftentimes free condoms are available, and they are through so-called sex education encouraged to fornicate. This is, to me, one of the most tragic aspects of the spiritual state of our people. Our parents simply refuse to take responsibility for their children's education, and they are brainwashed from an early age in the Marxist doctrines of the state. To refer to just one of many examples of how confused our people are, um, uh, just prior to the uh, U.S. presidential election last year, uh, a major Afrikaans newspaper took a poll and uh, they asked, asked Afrikaans people that, you know, if they were American, uh, whether they'd vote for Obama or for Romney or for neither, and uh, 11,000 people participated in the poll, and 50%, half of them actually said they'd vote for Obama. Um, and in a rather shocking gesture, a prominent Afrikaner leader um, in nationalist circles publicly came out in support of Obama And uh, you know, during last year's election. And the reason he actually gave for this was um, 
his environmental policies, you know, his green policies, which is, you know, just an example of how, of the, of the confusion that our people are experiencing currently and um, how lost we really are. Uh, birth rates are also in decline, and apart from feminism that has infiltrated the minds of nearly every female Afrikaner university graduate who are now much more interested in their career and making money than raising a godly family, the excuse is also often used that one would be irresponsible to raise a family in the current socioeconomic climate. While on the contrary, the fact that we as a people have neglected our families and our responsibilities to our progeny is a primary reason we find ourselves in the current hellhole in the first place. Uh, in the concluding section at the end, I'll also touch on what we are to do in the midst of the current judgment. But let me just first add for the moment that the bird people aren't generally looking, uh, the bulk of the bird people at least, aren't looking to God for deliverance. We are still trying and failing along the exact same route that got us here in the first place. Uh, most of our political organizations that advocate for Afrikaner interests, uh, most famous of whom are AfriForum, the Freedom Front Plus, the Transvaal Agricultural Union, and Solidarity Trade Union, are all civil rights organizations. And even they even refer to themselves as minority rights organizations. And they actually advocate egalitarianism, along with so-called colorblindness and non-racialism and human rights, while they have no regard for God's law. Um, and these ideologies, along with materialism, materialism um, are what drive the contemporary mainstream Afrikaner struggle against the ANC regime. And obviously, as scripture teaches us in First uh, Peter 3, verse 9, we should not repay evil with evil, which is exactly what we've been doing for years now. And as a result, we suffer the necessary consequences of our apostasy. So yeah, that is um, my brief outline of the current situation. Uh, I don't know if you uh, have any comments or questions at this stage. It sounds like you guys are in a similar case as America. We have a lot of the same problems, of, and it's, it breaks my heart to hear about that. What, can you tell me a little bit more about the gun laws? Are you guys allowed to own guns at all out there? Yeah, we are. Um, I think my dad is a little bit more familiar with that. Can you explain yeah. the gun laws? Yeah, well, uh, we used to have uh, gun laws uh, that regulate the ownership of guns all the time since the Second World War. Uh, uh, during the Second World War, uh, uh, our government uh, did uh, uh, okay. yeah they they, they did uh, 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 they did force force us to uh, to hand in all our guns, our parents' guns actually. Uh, I didn't live at my that grandparents. Time. Yeah. Uh, so uh, because because our government sided with the British yeah, in yeah, the Second World yeah. War, and uh, a lot of the Bur uh, people on the ground sided with the Germans, you know, and in order to stop a revolution, you know, they confiscated. Yeah, that's that's right. And uh, uh, 
So since then, we, we, our guns were regulated, but we owned guns freely. Right now, they changed it, and we are uh, restricted to one firearm, uh, one, one gun, and uh, uh, one rifle, uh, and one shotgun. Uh, and and uh, we pay uh, heavy levies of, uh, for owning it, so they discourage it uh, quite severely. But we are still allowed that. Okay, thank you for the clarification. I think we're turning now to, Jan, your discussion on the providence and the historical origins of the Boer people. Yes, thank you, Christian. Uh, I just want to uh, apologize. Uh, uh, I do read quite a lot of English, but I never speak English uh, in our uh, vicinity uh, 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 we, we, uh, and community. We, we don't speak English at all. So uh, I might get a little tongue-tied, and uh, the, the listeners must uh, tolerate maybe if I revert to reading more than just uh, talking. But, uh, uh, okay, I, I just want to say another thing. Uh, I, I, I want to use the word folk instead of nation or ethnic nation. Uh, it is a pity that the English word nation has been robbed by the statists of its original meaning of uh, ethnic group or kinsman, and uh, uh, I don't know a, a good English word uh, for that uh, meaning, so I, I will use the word folk, the Germanic word which we also use in Afrikaans to describe the, the word ethnic nation or the, the uh, meaning of ethnic nation. Okay, and uh, uh, I just want to say that the history of the Boer folk is, is quite intriguing, and uh, we won't have time to go to, into the detail, but uh, my prime object, objective, as you, uh, as, as Ali said, is to convey this uh, idea that God unmistakably and providentially brought about our folk settlement in Southern Africa. I will try to show this by way of pointing to some key moments in our history. The first scenario is 16th and 17th century Western Europe. That is the Reformation, the Roman Inquisition, Spanish imperialism, and the European trade with the East. I want you to visualize the geographical map of Europe and then also of Africa and Southeast Asia. King Philip II of Spain was a zealous Roman Catholic, and when he ascended the throne in 1555, he proceeded to viciously murder all the Protestants in his kingdom. The Netherlands was part of his kingdom too, and according to his own account, the prosecution in the Netherlands was even more vicious than in Spain itself. The Dutch was law-abiding citizens and initially subjected themselves to the rule of the Spanish kings. But the persecution and injustices of King Philip, King Philip II became impossible to bear and eventually Prince William of Orange started a rebellion in 1568. This resistance war 
continued for 80 years until the Dutch was finally freed in 1648. By this time, the trade with India and Indonesia was in full swing and the Dutch had a thriving company called the United East Indian Company, uh, the United Dutch East Indian Company, who traded with the East. The Spanish king, then Philips III, was furious about the feat of his armada and prohibited the Dutch trading ships to harbor in Lisbon. Are you still there? Yes, I'm still here. Oh, the, the, the uh, telephone just uh, made a strange sound. But yeah. Okay. So, okay, they, they, uh, he prohibited the, the Dutch trading ships to harbor in Lisbon, which was the nearest European harbor and the commercial center of the then thriving trade with the East. The Dutch ships were now forced to continue the journey to the harbor of Amsterdam. As the trip from India was already very exhausting, this caused a big problem. When one of their ships stranded at the so-called Cape of Storms at the southern tip of Africa, it took six months for an available ship passing the Cape to pick up the survivors. By that time, the stranded Dutchmen were already started a farming project uh, and a trade with the indigenous Hottentots. When they eventually arrived in the Netherlands, they convinced the Dutch East uh, Indian Company to establish a refreshment post at the Cape of Storms, which later became known as the Cape of Good Hope. In 1652, a mere four years after the end of the 80-year war with Spain, Jan van Ribeef, a devout Christian, landed at the Cape to establish the refreshment post. Something noteworthy is that the Spanish and Portuguese have, handed, uh, have landed at the Cape Coast before, and the Portuguese established colonies on both sides of South Africa, but God spared South Africa for Protestant settlement. After two years of living in the Cape, Van Riebeek wrote a vow thanking God for blessing them in all their efforts and protecting them from the savages. He committed all the coming generations to honoring God for this blessing by commemorating the day of the landing as a day of prayer and thanksgiving. In the meanwhile, the Roman Catholic Inquisition in Europe continued in all its devilish might. Many Protestants fled to the now free Netherlands. Most were from France and Germany. As there weren't jobs for all of them in the Netherlands, and because the French Huguenots were mostly noblemen who had experience in farming, the company decided to send them to South Africa. But a very interesting thing happened here. The company only allowed emigrants who were strict reformed Calvinists. Because of this, the early white settlement in the Cape knew no other religion but Calvinism. The indigenous people of the Cape were the Hottentots. Now it is important to understand that they are not related to the Negro. They are a completely different race from the Negro. In Afrikaans, we pronounce their race as Kapuida. I'm not sure of the English pronunciation, but I suppose it must be something like Kapoids. 
Anyway, the Hottentots lived all along the southern coastal area of southern Africa. In the interior lived another Capoid people called the Bushmen. The Hottentots are also known as the Khoi and the Bushmen as the Sun. The Khoi were semi-nomadic, raised cattle and gathered fruit from wild plants. The Sun were fully nomadic and specialized in hunting. It is a misconception that the black man were the indigenous people of Southern Africa. The Khoi and Sun lived in this area for thousands of years before the blacks started migrating south from Central, Central Africa. The blacks only settled in Southern Africa from approximately the 16th century AD. And I mean, by Southern Africa, I mean the current South Africa. They did live in Zimbabwe before that time, but they only arrived in South Africa, in the current South Africa, by the 16th century AD. Generally the same time as the whites settled Southern Africa. Because the Bushmen unceasingly slaughtered their cattle, the blacks massacred the Bushmen almost into extinction. Throughout the 18th century, the white farmers were becoming increasingly dissatisfied with the government in Cape Town. That was, that was the Dutch government. They started moving eastward. Then something amazing happened. At the same time the whites moved inland, a devastating smallpox epidemic broke out among the Hottentots, which almost wiped them out. This caused the Eastern Cape to be vacant for white settlement. Note that the white settlers did not need to fight them for their land. They were annihilated by godly providence. It was approximately only in 1750 that the whites first encountered the black settlers at the Fish River. That is approximately 500 miles east from Cape Town. This black folk was the Khoza. This meeting soon led to conflict because the Khozas stole the cattle of the Boers. The Boers retaliated and got most of their cattle back. This happened a few times, but when the British took over the Cape in 1806, they forbade the Boer retaliations. But initially, all went relatively well under British rule. However, from 1814, the British started to anglicize the colony. And they also started to use Hottentots in the police force to enforce the law. This was unacceptable to the Boers, and eventually many of them moved away again, this time to the north. This move is known as the Great Track. Yeah, Jamie, Jamie Dobb mentioned that as well yeah. during his program. Yeah, the, the, actually it's a famous, the fam famous movement of the Boers. Yeah, from the Cape Inland. And it was another critical moment in the history of the Boers. By the time of the Great Trek, which started in 1836, different black folker settled in many parts of the South African interior at the same time. Actually, yeah, they have already settled there by the time of the Great Trek. However, the three years preceding the Great Trek were extremely dry and famine 
forced many of them to move back north where they came from. Furthermore, and of even greater significance, the king of the Zulu folk started a genocidal war upon all the other black folk in the area. They literally murdered everybody they could find. This war is known as the Difakane, which means total annihilation war. When the Zulu king died, his son continued the annihilation. At this time, his half-brother rebelled and fled with a strong military contingent, only to continue the Difakane in the rest of the subcontinent. The result was that, that the land was empty when the Boers moved in. They saw no living blacks, only empty villages and dry bones of the victims. When the vagabond Zulu prince attacked and murder, murdered also the Boer settlers, a Boer leader, Hendrik Potgieter, led a retaliation and drove him and his army completely out of the area into what is now known as Zimbabwe. The few survivors of the Difakane, who hid in caves and mountains, were so thankful towards Potgieter that they pledged him freedom to let his Boers settle wherever they want. In the meanwhile, another group of Boers went to Natal, the land of milk and honey. Yeah, that's on the east coast. Yes, that's of, a, of the high rainfall area of South yeah, Africa. The most fertile part of the country. Where the Zulus reigned. The Boer leader, Peter Tief, went to the Zulu king to negotiate a piece of land for them to settle. The king agreed on the condition that the Boers would retrieve a number of cattle which was stolen by another black folk who hid in the uninhabitable Drakensberg Mountains. As the Boers did, okay, the Boers did this, and the Zulu king signed the agreement. To celebrate the agreement, the king invited the Boer delegation to attend a military parade in his village. He insisted that they should come unarmed to show their good faith. He then proceeded to have all of them murdered. This treacherous deed was a devastating blow to the small Boer company. Most of their most able men were murdered. The Zulu warriors then proceeded to murder the elderly, and the women and children where they camped. This they did in the most brutal and vicious manner. The other leaders also died, some at the hands of the savages and others of illness. The survivors bunched together and defended themselves as best they could. But their situation was so desperate and hopeless that their destruction was imminent. Leaderless and devastated, it was a miracle they survived the months until the arrival of Andres Pretorius, who was prepared to lead a retaliation expedition. Now he was a good strategist and soon realized that their situation was hopeless. He realized that they could only be saved by a miracle. The odds were heavily against them.
The Zulu force was a well-trained, experienced and bloodthirsty army of more than 20,000 soldiers. These soldiers consist, considered dying in battle as the greatest honor and defeat as worse than death. The Boer force consisted of 470 able men with single-shot front-loaded muskets. Pretorius proposed a vow that, oh, he proposed, sorry, Pretorius proposed a vow that if God would save them and give the enemy in their hand, they would erect a house for God and bring him the glory and committed their children to this vow. Now I just want to explain that this house is actually meant in the biblical sense. It is a, it is a, it is a national uh, house, like... Yeah. The Bible refers to the house of David, you know, for example, as Judah. Yeah. Uh, so when the vow said we'll erect a house, it means we'll erect uh, a God-abiding yeah, uh, community. Com yeah, yeah. yeah, people. Yeah. yeah. Further, that they will keep the day of the deliverance in remembrance every year as a Sabbath, so that the following generations would always be reminded of this vow. Pretorius also insisted that participation in the vow should not be forced on anybody, but that all men joining him on commando had to be unanimous in supporting the vow. Everybody agreed and they moved out to meet the Zulus. They made the vow on 9 December 1838. After that, they repeated it every night up until the 15th of December. On that day, the scouts reported that the Zulus were coming. The Boers found a good spot to defend themselves where the st a stream flowed into a river. Throughout the night, the Boers could hear the Zulus taking up their positions, and they were so close that the Boers could smell them. But the next day, a lot of miracles happened. Firstly, there was such a thick fog that the Zulus couldn't attack. Then suddenly the fog lifted and the Boers started shooting. Then the Zulus unexpectedly, unexplicably started to fall back and their rear guard began fighting with the retreating Zulus. There was such disorder among this usually disciplined army that the Boers could not understand it. Afterwards, the Zulus explained that they saw a huge army storming down on them from the higher ground. This sight was not visible to the Boers. Eventually, there were more than 3,000 Zulus killed that day, and the river turned red from their blood. That is why the battle is known as Blood River. Not a single casualty among the Boers. We celebrate this miracle every year on 16 December as the Day of the Vow. It is also called the Day of the Covenant. This day and deed of God defines our folk. A vow is called a gelofte in Afrikaans, and we also refer to our folk as the gelofte folk. Because God emptied the country before us when we moved in, and because God delivered us in the moment we faced annihilation, we liken our settlement to that of Israel 
when God led them into Canaan. That's it. Yes, so that's the end of of, uh, of the uh, history of the origins of our people. I um I just want to know, Christian, you're you're uh, broadly following um the line. I'm I'm broadly following what? Uh, the 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 line of thought and the the oh, historical yes uh the history yes it's very okay. very good information I'll I'll have to go back and review it but I am. I am following. Okay, that's good. Yeah. All right. Now, Adi, would you like to talk about the 19th century Boer republics? Yeah, I'll I'll continue with that. Um, after this battle, the battle my father just mentioned occurred um, at the end of uh, 1838. Um, uh, so. Shortly after, uh, well, at least let me start off by saying that the conflict between the Boers and the Zulus didn't end after the Boer victory at Blood River. A few battles were also fought in the next few years. A group of Zulu rebels who opposed the tyranny of their own imperialist leaders also fought with the Boers against the main Zulu forces. The Boers established their first republic, and this is also the first white sub-Saharan African state in history, uh, called the Republic of Natalia in 1843. Now, the name Natalia was given to the area which is uh, along the east coast of South Africa by the Portuguese explorers, uh, who were the first Europeans who discovered many areas along the southeast coast of Africa during the previous centuries. The Portuguese explorer Vasco da Gama landed in what um, he called Natal around Christmas time, and the names Natal and Natalia are derived from the Portuguese word for birth, signifying the celebration of the birth of Christ on Christmas. This word is also derived from the Latin original natus, from which we get our word nation. So the name Natalia, for me, therefore, is also significant as the name given to the first white Christian Boer ethno-state in Southern Africa. I just want to come in here quickly, if I may. Yeah. Um, uh, the the, the Boers could settle there and uh, erect that republic because uh, when the, the Zulu king... Dengane died, he was followed by King Panda, and King Panda honored the agreement between Dengane and the Boers. Right. So, so, so they, they settled uh, peacefully there, uh, eventually. Uh, I just want to say that, uh, that even that uh, land weren't uh, won by war. Yeah. It, it was a peaceful settlement. Uh, but the Republic of Natalia was short-lived, however, um, as the British annexed Natal, the Natal area shortly thereafter in 1846, and the Boers were again forced to move, move further west and north inland, into inland South Africa. Now, they settled um, on south and north of the uh, Fall Rafid, the Vol River, uh, which 
flows from east to west yeah. across South Africa. Am I right? Yeah. yeah. Um, and they formed um, two colonies. Uh, well, okay, the area um, south of the Vaal River became known as the Orange River Colony. And the area north of the Vaal River became known as the Transvaal. Um, in 1848, uh, Harry Smith also annexed the Boot Territory south of the Vaal River and formed, uh, and he called it the Orange River Colony. He not only disrespected the Boot borders and their agreements with the native nomadic Hottentots who lived primarily west of the Boot Territories, but he actually made agreement with, agreements with the Hottentots to, as he call, called it, keep law and order in the area. And he even armed them with weapons to use against the birds. It was particularly humiliating to the noble Christian people that the birds were to be effectively governed by savages who obviously unfairly suppressed the birds in the area. This in turn led to the Battle of Philippoulis, where the Boers fought the combined forces of the British, Blacks, and Hottentots. Unfortunately, the multicultural forces won the day, and the Boers were forced to retreat even further inland. The net result was that Sir Harry Smith divided huge portions of birdland into unalienable and alienable Hottentot territory. Thankfully, Smith's tyrannies finally caught up with him as a member of the British Parliament, Charles Adderley, ordered a commission into South African affairs in the British Lower House, which directly led to the Sandra Fir Convention of 17 January 1852. With this convention, the independence of uh, the second major republic, called the South African Republic, or the Transvaal, was internationally acknowledged. This convention is also particularly relevant for our people as it marks the first time we were internationally recognized as a separate people with an independent homeland. Sir George Grey, the British governor of the Cape Colony, called Smith from his post and replaced him with a man named George Cathcart. The British government also sent a man called Sir George Russell Clerk, the former governor of Bombay in India, to Bloemfontein, the major bush settlement in the Orange River colony. And Bloemfontein is also our hometown from where we are doing this podcast today. But under this... Um, uh, uh, Cathcart's leadership, the Boer Republic of the Orange Free State, was also proclaimed on 23 February 1854. So by 1854, there were two Boer Republics um, on either side of the Vaal River in South Africa. Now, I must admit that I was rather disappointed when I recently read the Constitution of the Orange Free State, um, which was drawn up in 1854 as the spirit of modernism seemed to be all too present in the Constitution. However, there were also a lot of uh, good biblical theonomic principles that the Constitution um, of the Free State 
recognized, um, such as private property, the principle of subsidiarity. Um, subsidiarity, I think I'm pronouncing it right. It's the principle that uh, the smallest possible form of government must handle um, the issues concerning it. You know, subsidiarity is the Christian principle because it starts with self-government, which is repentance and sanctification, and then familial government, church government, and local king rule. Um, the the uh, the constitution also emphasized king rule, as well as ethnic citizenship. And it guaranteed the state's commitment to the advancement of the Dutch Reformed Church, although there is not a single reference to God or the Bible in the Constitution. Another um, discouraging fact about the Constitution that is that it even allowed the government to descend into tyranny as it gives the government the power to gather texts from citizens to pay so-called public debt. And this exceeds the limits of the divinely ordained role of government, as is evident from Scripture and the Belgic Confession, which our Boer ancestors held so dear. Now, as my father pointed out to me when we were preparing this, um, in defense of this consti first constitution, of the uh, Bur Republic of the Orange Free State, it has to be said that in the context of the 19th century, no one imagined that government tyranny would reach the level it has today, um, both in South Africa and in the West. Um, and it's also true that everyone at the time knew that the Burs were a Christian people. But the fact remains that the constitution of one of our first major republics is very far from theonomic. And this is a primary reason, in my opinion, to why God decreed that the British republics would eventually lose their independence to Great Britain again half a century, right, half a century, century later, after the Great, great Anglo-Boer War, the Second Great Anglo-Boer War. Now, as I mentioned um, before, they were... Uh, two neighboring Boer republics established in the early 1850s. Many of the Boers wanted to unite these two republics, as we were, after all, one united people. However, Sir George Grey, the British governor at the Cape Colony, put an end to these movements on the grounds uh, that it would violate the Bloemfontein and Sandra Fier conventions. In 1867, that's about 15 years after we established our republics. God blessed our people even further, as in the same year, diamonds were discovered in the Orange Free State and gold in the South African Republic. This obviously dramatic, dramatically increased the wealth of our people, and we gained a lot of international attention. Ten years later, however, a British imperialist by the name of Sir Phyllis Shepston annexed Transvaal for the British. The president of the Transvaal at the time, the famous Paul Krier, or as Americans would pronounce it, Paul Kruger, after whom the famous Krugerrands are named, initially tried to negotiate, but asked with, with, with Shepston, 
after this failed, the first great Anglo-Boer War broke, broke out on 8 December 1880. And on the 21st of March, the famous Battle of Mayuba. At the famous Battle of Mayuba, the British surrendered to the Boers and the South African Republic regained its independence. Particularly significant for our theological analysis is the reaction of the Boer people after this victory. The vow of Blood River, which had actually already been neglected by many of our people even then, was given renewed attention and the glory of the victory was given to God. Like with Blood River, the reason for this victory also didn't lie in the inherent greatness of our people, but it was our willingness to serve the kingdom of Christ that led to our success. After this loss, the British settlers in southern Africa streamed to what would become known as Rhodesia, or today Zimbabwe, for gold. But that did not live up to expectations, and the South African Republic remained the only country with real gold reserves. In 1886, the British South African businessman Cecil John Rhodes founded the company's Consolidated Goldfields of South Africa and the Beers Consolidated Mines in Johannesburg. Rhodes wanted one unified South Africa under British rule. And this was the first primary reason that led to the Second Great Anglo-Boer War, which broke out in 1899. Now, just for historical clarification, at, at the time, um, the area which is today known as, as South Africa was not a unified country. It consisted of many um, Bantu areas, black areas, um, inhabited by the black people, and also two British colonies, the Cape Colony and Natal, and two Boer republics. Um, and Rhodes wanted to unite um, everyone into his um, multicultural empire for Britain. I, maybe, maybe I should just come in here. Their dream was uh, to rule from Cape to Cairo. Uh, in other words, the, the dream of the British imperialists was to rule over the whole of Africa, from the south point of the Cape to the north point of Cairo. Yeah. The British High Commissioner and Arch Imperialist Lord Alfred Milner slandered the birds among the British public in order to gain sympathy for Rhodes' dream. This dream that my father just mentioned, the Cape to Cairo dream. Furthermore, there was a dispute over railway tariffs the British had to pay to import goods into the Boer republics, and Rhodes also wanted immediate voting rights for British citizens who settled in Boer territories. The war itself was postponed, however, because thankfully the chief commander of the British troops stationed in South Africa during most of the 1890s Sir William Butler saw through Milner's slander. However, a while after his retirement, war was eventually declared on the Boer Republics on the 11th of October, 1899. Here I just want to point out one thing in regards to the relationship between the British and the Boers during this era, which is of particular significance for 
an orthodox theological understanding of this history. Um, during the 19th century, especially following the advent of the Industrial Revolution, Britain was becoming increasing, increasingly secularized. And although the general sentiment among the British people was never actually anti-Bur, their apostasy allowed them to be deceived by godless leaders such as Mulder. And as Jamie Dobbander pointed out on the show previously, um, by the late 19th century, Britain was already being dominated by the Rothschild banking system, which is a primary reason for the antagonism towards the Christian people at the time. Although the two presidents of the two republics verbally proclaimed that the people entered the war under the banner of the God of their fathers, the overall sentiment of the Boer generals, with the exception of generals Christian Bayer and Quis de la Rey, was not one of complete dependence upon the Almighty God for deliverance from the enemy. The Boers fought valiantly during the three years the war went on and achieved many famous victories, but Partially because of the tyrannical war crimes of the British army under the leadership of Lords Molnar and Kitchener, in putting Boer women and children in concentration camps, where 26,000 Boer women and children died in the most horrendous conditions, we eventually had to surrender, and on the 31st of May 1902, a peace treaty was signed in the Transvaal town of Vereniging, known as the Peace Treaty of Vereniging, because the, okay, the Boots fought so valiantly and bravely, and despite the, lo the loss, managed to hold out against the mighty British army for three years. They received a lot of credit and praise in the international media following the war. However, sadly, None of the glory was given to God, and generals like Christian de Wett, who had a lot of success during the war with his guerrilla, guerrilla warfare tactics, took the glory for himself. This is in direct contrast to the attitude our people had following the victories of Blood River over the Zulus and Mayuva over the British. Sadly, even today, despite the judgment we find ourselves in currently. Many of our people still praise and glorify our great generals of the anglo Boer War, with which, of course, there is nothing wrong. But it is sinful when the pride and glory is not transferred to our King Christ, from whom we receive all our strength, and without whom we know we can do nothing. This sinful sentiment of the Boers is what led to the divine judgment we suffered by losing the anglo boer War to the British and the, necess and the consequences thereof. And so that's it for the, uh, for the history of the 19th century of our people. Very good. I'm getting some good comments from the people in the chat room who really appreciate such uh, good, profound information that they'll have to go back and review later after we get the podcast up. So thanks for your... Well, excellent research, guys. Yeah, I, I can imagine that uh, that it might be, you know, for someone um, not not familiar with our history, it might be a lot of information 
to take in at once. But I mean, thankfully, you know, people can listen to the pod- podcast later on again and uh, and and review, like you say, which I think would be good. Yeah. Uh, sorry, uh, we 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 started a little late there because of uh, we we misunderstood the time difference or misinterpreted it. But I just want to know: uh, uh, are, uh, are we going to finish at uh, in half an hour, or how, what is your projection? I right now we've got we've been recording for exactly one hour, or so and I think we're about three quarters of the way through the outline. I would predict another half hour. Okay, that's fine. I just wanted to to uh, ask whether there's uh, anything that you would like to ask at this stage, or well, there, uh, should we continue? There was one question I'll ask quickly before you get to the, the next section, and somebody from the chat room wanted to know how how we can help out the the whites the whites in the in the squatter camps over there. We often hear about young girls being forced into prostitution. And just the poverty about the squatter camps. Can we help out anyway financially? Did he ask me financially? Yeah, uh, they can help out the poobers. Well, uh, uh, of course, financially help uh, will be will be very uh, much appreciated uh, uh, for them. Uh, we do uh, uh, help them ourselves. Uh, there's, there's quite a few of us uh, donating. To them, uh, but their position is is terrible. I must say that it's it's not uh, being uh, what brave. Yeah, exaggerated. Yeah, it's not being exaggerated when you hear it. Uh, so uh, yes, uh, maybe we can we can think about that. We, can, we maybe we can discuss uh, it in uh, on your on your Facebook page. Yeah, we'll we'll maybe try and. Uh, I mean, in terms of financial aid, we might. Um, uh, be able to put up on like Tribal Theocrats Facebook page um, an account number or something um, for for a fund for these people. Sure. Um, for my part, you know, I just like to say that I think at this stage, and I mean, Dad, you're I mean, you're welcome to correct me if you don't agree. I think at this stage, financial help is probably not the thing we need most as a people. Um, I think the, uh, not not that it's unwelcome, and I mean, we do help our own people, the more um, well-off and wealthy people, I mean, we do help our people financially, but I think our people's spiritual state is, is a much bigger concern for me than our physical state at this stage. And I think in in that is is, is the, the that that is the solution to our problems. Um, the thing about financial aid is it it's in the end it's it's a very short term solution. Um, and it, it's it's not really sustainable. Um, so for me, I always tell um internet you know the international um friends we have. I always tell them you know. For us, it's more important to pray for us at this stage. Um, okay. And I think, uh, you know, shows like these, like this show, actually has a, a more positive long, long-term effect than, than financial aid would. I don't know if you if you want to uh, add something. That is true. Uh, but, of course, it's not wrong to, to help them. We do that ourselves. So yeah. uh, so that, that, that is fine. And there they are uh, organizations who 
also uh, 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 not educate them, uh, uplay. Yeah, yeah, to uh, uplift them with yeah, pro educational programs yes, and yes, uh, equip them. Yeah, um, uh, learning them trades and uh, yeah. uh, uh, teaching them trades to, uh, to 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 be able to help themselves. So there, there, there's some good work being done there, and we we will we we can give you some details about that. Uh, afterwards. Yeah, would it be okay to post something like that on on the Tribal Theocrat Facebook page? Sure. Question? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. All right. Thank you. Good advice. Okay. Shall I continue with the with the next section? Uh, the period between 1910 and 1994. So yes. actually, the 20th century period. Yes, sir. Please do. Okay. So that was only in 1910 that South Africa first became a uni unified country. The two, uh, as Ali said, the two former Boer republics were united with the Cape Colony and the British colony of Natal. The black homelands were to be governed by the new South Union of South Africa. Three areas were not included, namely Botswana, Lesotho, and Swaziland. Now, I want to tell you that Apart from the Zulu and the Kosa that I have mentioned up to now, there are nine other black folk in South Africa as we know it now. The most important of, uh, are, are the Sutu, the Tswana, and the Swazi. Now, the Botswana, uh, the Lesotho, and Swaziland were ca uh, countries or areas uh, uh, which the, the British government uh, held out of the Union of South Africa for these people. These areas were governed as British High Commissioner areas. They were all recognized as black homelands under British rule. A very interesting and important fact which is little known is the importance of the Boer Republic's struggle for a seaport. The Boer republics Ari we're talking about were landlocked and had no harbor. The British imperialists saw this as an important means to isolate the republics and eventually suffocate them economically. Now, contrary to popular belief, the Boer republics had good neighborly relations with the black kings and chiefs, and they tried to negotiate a seaport through their countries. This is the British, uh, the, this the British imperialists could not tolerate. Therefore, because Lesotho, Botswana, and Swaziland were landlocked as well, the British had no problem granting them self-government. In fact, Swaziland did initially have a seashore, but the British government simply redrew their border to keep a corridor between them and the sea. But the two most prominent black folk, the Zulu and the Tosa, were not granted independence because they had long coastlines and could furnish the Boer republics with a harbor. Now it is interesting that our enemies always emphasize the argument that the apartheid government gave the blacks only 13% of the surface area. This is a blatant lie. The apartheid government didn't give the blacks land. The land where they lived 
was based by settlement. The British government, as well as the Boer republics, recognized this fact. Our enemies also pretend that the 1913 Native Land Act was intended to rob the blacks of their land. This is another blatant lie. The purpose of the act was in fact to protect the blacks from white entrepreneurs who bought up their land. Any sane observer will see that there never was a danger of blacks buying up white property. This just didn't happen. The act did not allocate land to blacks. It merely stated that whites may no longer buy up property in the existing black areas, and similarly, that blacks may not buy property in white areas. The total area of the black homelands make out approximately half of the total area of South Africa. The fact that Britain treated some of these areas differently from the rest for their own sinister reasons surely should not cloud this issue. Apart from the fact that the area of the blacks is physically off of the country, they also have the most fertile and highest rainfall land, which by any objective standard means that they have much more than half of the productive land. To understand the problem the National Party faced, which was the ruling party uh, since 1948, we must consider the settlement style of the blacks. They didn't occupy a solid, connected piece of land, but rather settled in different villages, each with its own captain. Now, even before the National Party took over in 1936, another law was enacted whereby the government bought an, an additional 15 million acres of land from whites to consolidate the areas of the various black homelands in order to make them more viable in the Western sense. In 1950, the government appointed a committee of experts to advise them on this problem. The committee is known by the name of its chairman, Tomlinson. The Tomlinson Commission's findings were highly regarded by political scientists and anthropologists. They recommended an even more ambitious consolidation plan, whereby millions of acres more were bought from white owners and handed to blacks. A few remote black settlements were relocated to these areas. I must stress that all these relocations were done with consideration of the cultural and physical needs of the people, and all of them were in a better position afterwards. Our enemies rant about these relocations, but that is just another unrealistic attack. In 1958, God blessed us with a leader who was God-fearing and had insight and vision like no one else ever in our history. Dr. Hendrik Verwoerd became Prime Minister. 
Uh, Christian, I will ask you in a second to, to play that clip about Verwoerd. Uh, he became Prime Minister in, in 1958, and he eventually started the process to bring the black homelands to full independence. In 1960, the British Prime Minister, Harold Macmillan, delivered his famous Winds of Change speech before the South African Parliament. He warned Dr. Verwood that they found the policy of apartheid unacceptable. To this, Dr. Verwood explained the moral basis of the policy. If we can play that clip, maybe we can hear Dr. Verwood's speech. Sure thing. The tendency in Africa for nations to become independent and at the same time to do justice to all does not only mean being just to the black man of Africa, but also to be just to the white man of Africa. <laughs> we call ourselves Europeans, but actually we represent the white men of Africa. They are the people, not only in the Union, but through major portions of Africa, who brought civilization here, who made the, possible, uh, the present developments of black nationalism possible by bringing them education, by showing them this way of life, by bringing in industrial development, by bringing in the ideals which Western civilization has developed itself. And the white man who came to Africa, perhaps to trade in some cases, perhaps to bring the gospel, has remained to stay. And particularly we, in this southernmost portion in Africa, have such a stake here that this is our only motherland. We have nowhere else to go. We settled a country bare. And the Bantu came in this country and settled certain portions for themselves. And it's in line with the thinking of Africa to grant those fullest rights, which we also with you admit all people should have, we believe, providing those rights for those people in the fullest degree in that part of Southern Africa which their forefathers found for themselves and settled in. But similarly, we believe in balance. We believe in allowing exactly those same full opportunities to remain within the grasp of the white man who has made all this possible. Thank you, uh, Christian. Yeah. I hope that was clear to everybody that the intentions of apartheid was very definitely justice to all. It is, it is a lie to say that we wanted to suppress the blacks. It's a blatant lie.
Uh, okay, in 1961, South Africa became a republic, which meant that we were no longer under the British crown. We wanted to stay in the British Commonwealth, but the devilish forces, forces against the Christendom within the Commonwealth made that impossible. So we were on our own. Immediately, they also called for worldwide sanctions. The whole world responded. The only countries I can remember who were still prepared to trade with us were Portugal, Japan, Israel, and Taiwan. Now, you have to realize that South Africa was totally dependent on Great Britain for its commerce and trade. Under British rule, we cut all former ties with the Netherlands and Germany. We were like a sibling being deserted. The British and South African English press called us a banana republic and gave us a maximum of three years until certain and complete collapse. But then another miracle happened. God's promises in Deuteronomy 28 kicked in. We suddenly had the most amazing economic prosperity. In five years' time, we surpassed the economic growth rate of all the Western nations and were second only to the growth rate of Japan. Of course, South Africa and Dr. Verwoerd was hated by the Antichrist. We were not only creating a successful Christian theonomy, Okay, Ari showed me that uh, it wasn't uh, a theonomy in the sense that we right now know a theonomy should be, but it was a theonomy ne nevertheless. Yeah, sadly, um, my my dad studied political science um, at a South African university in in the 1980s, and. Um, you you never heard like the names like Rush Juni or Bonson at all. Um, yeah. you, you, I mean, you were taught all the secular yeah. political philosophers, but we didn't know anything about uh, about the huge contributions that, for example, Rush Juni made to theonomy. Yeah, that was uh, our theonomy ideas were more on the lines of paper. Uh, yeah, maybe from Princeton as well, but 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 Kaper was the more recent uh, philosopher that uh, that that uh, and that was that wasn't uh, all right, but it was uh, a theonomy nevertheless. So we were creating a successful Christian theonomy, but we were also successfully enacting God's ordained boundaries for the Falker, and thereby creating a system where different races could coexist in harmony. And I referred to Acts 17, verse 26 and 27, uh, where God explains uh, these boundaries. Uh, so we, we had a, a peaceful coexistence with the black folker, uh, and we were also strictly anti-communist. So our enemies were adamant that 
Verwurt had to be eliminated. And this they did by murdering him with their second attempt on September 6, 1966. This was a devastating blow to our country and our cause. This was at a critical stage of the execution of the policy of separate development, or as it was internationally known, apartheid. The little known fact was that Dr. Verwoerd was being criticized from all corners of giving too much to the blacks. Even the liberalist opposition attacked him for this. Verwoerd did invest quite big amounts into the development of the black homelands and also into so-called border industrial development. The idea was to stop the inflow of black work seekers into white areas by getting industries to move to the borders of the black homelands to create jobs there so that the blacks could stay in their countries and work at these industries. During the apartheid years, not only the whites benefited from the blessings of the Lord, the blacks prospered greatly. This may come as a surprise to people who have been misinformed by the media. In fact, uh, the, the UNESCO report on education and health uh, shows this quite clearly. Even though they were uh, uh, hateful towards apartheid, they had to admit that the blacks benefited greatly. However, the facts speak for themselves. The living standards of the blacks climbed so fast that they responded with a population explosion. Their numbers grew from about 10 million in 1960 to, about, to almost 30 million in 1980. But alas, when God blessed us so abundantly, we forgot to give him the glory. Instead, we took the glory for ourselves. We started to believe we are better than other people, even superior to other Europeans. That was our first mistake. Then we forgot God's promise in Deuteronomy 28, that he will bless us to the extent that other folk will see it. The liberalists convinced many of us that these blessings is unjust or un are unjust toward the neighboring blacks. These atrocities are our sins against God, and we became increasingly indifferent toward God and his law. The heads of state that followed Verwoerd did not depend on God to the extent Verwoerd did. Eventually, the last white president, F.W. de Klerk, completely capitulated before the liberalist onslaught and handed our country over to the ANC communists. He will be remembered as a traitor of his folk. So that is it for the uh, 20th century. Excellent. Very good stuff. And... I think now we're going to have a conclusion. Yeah, um, we I think on the website on the outline we entitled it um, "Covardes," where where to now? Right. 
where do we go? And um, I, um, if my dad will allow me, I'll, I'll probably start off by um, by giving my uh, thoughts um, on the road we should take and the road forward, and uh, my dad will give his um, directly afterwards. Now, just to just to start off, um, let me allow me just to reiterate what I said at the beginning. Um, as a people, we're not going to get anywhere with a civil rights battle. Um, we've been doing that ever since the ANC took power two decades ago, and the net effect of our civil rights organizations, uh, the net effect is that our civil rights organizations are involved in court battles literally all the time. And even if we win court case after court case against the government, uh, the government either simply disregards um, the law, which is actually quite common in Africa, or they simply make a new law that suppresses us in another way, and the whole process, process starts over from scratch again. And with every legal battle, our people are just getting poorer and poorer as these civil rights organizations fund their legal cases with membership money. Um, so, you know, another problem with these these organizations, you know, I mentioned earlier that they are essentially, you know, they call themselves uh, minority rights organizations, human rights organizations, uh, you know, fighting for Afrikaner or civil rights. Um, but they, they, they don't approach the matter in, in a, a Christian biblical way, in complete dependence on God. I mean, it's even common for um, these movements to, to you know, quote um, Martin Luther King and, you know, refer to our struggle, you know, as, as similar to the struggle of the African Americans in the 1940s and 50s, you know, or the Jews in Nazi Germany, you know, so they they completely side with the the um, uh, essentially with the Marxist position um, and try to, like I said, you know, in the beginning, fight evil with evil. Um, so in these civil rights organizations, to which uh, you know a lot of people are turning, I see no hope. Um, the, the only real sustainable solution is to get out of the system completely. We need to get out of this multicultural empire. Um, and the only way that's going to happen is if our people's hearts and minds have been changed by the Holy Spirit. And we repent of our egalitarianism, our materialism, and our general immoral behavior, and we turn to Christ and we start obeying his law. And for me, this starts by reforming our own lives individually and that of our families to conform to his law. Because even though we've been stripped of political power, we still hold government over our, ourselves and we still have the freedom to govern our families. And we need to reform this, these spheres of government God's law. And in the end, what we want is our own ethno-state, or uh, folk-state, as we call it. Um, Jamie referred to Urania um, 
in the previous show, and Urania is 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 um, probably the best and most famous example of of a project of you know that's in the process of trying to establish this folk start. Um, but full self determination is never going to happen if we can't govern ourselves and our families according to God's law. So in practice, this for me. Um, means, you know, repentance as a people means for me the first step is getting our children out of the government schools. And uh, we also somehow need to establish a Christian tertiary educational institution, you know, a university, a Christian nationalist university. Because in school and in college, our youth are being totally corrupted. And they are turning their backs on God. So the primary reform to my mind is um, that w- is, uh, that we're in need of now is is uh, taking control of our children's education, and um, you know just to just to put everything I said into perspective, um, you know Jamie made a very interesting comment on a previous show. He said uh, he, re- he compared the bird people to Israel, uh, and I think you guys were talking about the American. Um, unconditional support for the state of Israel. And he said, you know, look at the birds. They live much more like the Israelites of the Old Testament than, than the modern Jews do. And I think Jamie might be a little over-optimistic about our people because he's coming from godless Great Britain. But um, it is true that our, our people are still identifiably Christian. Uh, we are less secularized uh, than the West, uh, than Europe especially. Uh, I think to a great degree we're even less secularized than America. We, I mean, at least we've got a higher church attendance um, among Afrikaners. And um, the the remnants of of the Christian people, the devout Christian people we were, are still there. So we the thing is we need to... to um, preach the truth and get the truth out there in the midst of con- of the confusion we find ourselves in. And um, and our people need to stop uh, the, with the, the, the uh, hypocritical, you know, uh, shallow religion we're practicing currently, and we need real, real repentance. And uh, everything will go, will go forward from there. And so that's, that's my part. Okay, uh, I, I yes, I, I agree with Adi. Uh, the, the the efforts that they do to make South African work, uh, uh, South Africa work, the efforts to make it livable uh, for for whites in South Africa uh, is not the ultimate solution. It it, it just um, uh, makes it a, a, a little more livable here. And we are thankful for that because if it wasn't for the uh, for the efforts of those organisations, uh, uh, probably we would probably uh, already be annihilated here. But uh, uh, the only real solution is political freedom. We we do need political freedom, uh, and there are organisations uh, who exert themselves to this end. Uh, but the fact is, we are powerless to achieve this. Uh, the, most of these organisations 
do uh, uh, go to the international uh, uh, community and uh, and uh, uh, organizations to to uh, yeah like like the UN and and the uh, international court to to try and achieve this because of our existing rights in this country. Uh, but there is no sympathy for us in those circles. Um, so, so we are truly powerless to achieve this. And as I tell Adi sometimes, this actually makes me excited because that is the way God works. He, uh, he also used... Uh, those situations in the Bible, uh, like Gideon, I think that's the way you pronounce Gideon. Is it Gideon? Yeah, one of the judge. Yeah, the judge Gideon. Uh, his powerless situation, God used, uh, and many other times, uh, he, he says his power uh, is, is shown in our weakness. Uh, and very few of our organizations actually uh, realize that we are totally dependent upon the Almighty God. In fact, we are so uh, lamed uh, that our people do not really believe that God is able or uh, that he wants to deliver us from this judgment. In fact, most people uh, do not uh, agree uh, that, that we are under judgment of God. They just said it was bad political decisions and and uh, characters who, who sold us out, but they don't see God's hand in it. So that is that is our first uh, uh, message to our people we, we, that we're trying to convey uh, everywhere we we get the chance is that we are under judgment of God, and uh, that, 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 that that we don't uh, our our enemy real enemy isn't uh, the ANC. It is it is Satan, and and. Uh, our, uh, uh, we don't, it's no use really to go to the ANC and plead with them, although there's nothing wrong with that, but that is not the, uh, the way uh, the, the, we will get, uh, get our freedom. We must go to God. We must go to God who uh, is punishing us. And uh, uh, when you tell them this, they, they, they just say that uh, God has his own time and we can do nothing about it as if we are not able to speak to God and to appeal to Him. So that, that we've got a, a problem there. Uh, and uh, uh, but but there are movements like the AWB, uh, the, the Afrikaner Weerstandbeweging. It's, it's like a Afrikaner Boer uh, resistance movement. Yeah, you you probably know the name Eugene Terblanche, Christian. Yes. It is, yeah, his, his organization. Yeah, okay, so there's a new leader, uh, 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 Eugene de Blanche was, was a bit dramatic and, and a very uh, forceful type of leadership. And there's a new leader now, uh, Stein von Ronge. Uh, he, he's, a, uh, he's, he's got his perspective exactly right, and he uh, wants, uh, and leading that organization towards these goals of, of returning to God and humbling uh, ourselves before God, uh, and, and some other organisations also uh, realise this, and uh, I've been uh, also helping with with the drawing up of a 
of a constitution. We try to prepare ourselves for the for the day God delivers us from this judgment, and uh, we we are propagating the principles of theonomy. And there's more and more people. Uh, actually, still few, but there are more and more people uh, realizing that uh, this is the way to go. Uh, there's, there's actually uh, a split up uh, between uh, some of our people who are becoming more and more reckless and uh, moving away from God and, uh, and, and more and more uh, solid group of people who are moving towards God. But we, are, of course, have the problem of the, the, the uh, modern Christian theology uh, and many people reject uh, religion uh, because they think that the the real Christian theology wants us to uh, bow before the the, uh, the forces of Satan and turn our other cheek. They don't. Uh, the, the modern Christian theology doesn't teach that, that we have to fight for Christ and for His kingdom. So, uh, so that, that misconception is also one that we have to address, uh, and it's a, a big problem in South Africa. Yeah. Yeah, so that's it from from us. Yeah, um, I think so. If uh, but this, uh, you're welcome. If there's anything we can maybe expound upon. Excellent. Uh, upon. Yeah, very good information. I'm so thankful you guys came on. I have two questions from the chat room, if you don't mind. Fine. Jamie Dobb would like to know. What you guys, your view on how much longer you have? How do you see the future playing out from a just from a human perspective? How much longer do you guys have before it gets really, 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 really bad? I uh, Jamie also mentioned speaking um, with me about this, um, and I think we uh, we said something, you know, in between ten to twenty years max. Um, I think if, if we're going on on the current trend um, and God doesn't, you know, do a miracle in this country, um, I'd say probably 10 to 15 years from now until, I mean, but 15 years from now, there'd probably still be, you know, booze left in South Africa. But I mean, uh, We'll be, you know, for all practical practical purposes, I think uh, we'll, we'll, we'll be done. Um, so, you know, but, uh, of course, um, God is in control, and um, he has his own time. And, uh, I mean, like the example of Gideon, my dad mentioned, um, he uses hopeless situations um, for his own glory, and he delivers his people from the most hopeless situations um, to to glorify his name even more. Um, so uh, I I'm not in in a position to objectively say how much time we have left, but I'd say you know uh, from a human perspective, ten to fifteen years. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Uh, the the fact is that uh, uh, the, the, the the South African government and all its uh, institutions and also the the black economic empowerment which uh, handed uh, uh, the, uh, a lot of the, the, the companies and, uh, uh, to the blacks uh, caused uh, causes the, uh, that, 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 that uh, if it was only for, for our own economy, they would have ruined it uh, quite a lot, uh, quite a while ago. The only thing that, that keeps us economically alive is, is the massive uh, 
contributions from Europe and and you, you know and and the United States. Uh, uh, you won't believe the the, the figures. Uh, they they uh, Sweden and and uh, Great Britain and and uh, the Netherlands, Germany. Everybody is just uh, pouring in money to South Africa to make this. Uh, uh, um, Hillary Clinton was in, was here. Um, I don't know if it was early this year or the end of last year, but Hillary Clinton visited South Africa and she promised. I, I'm not kidding you. You know, millions. I think it might might have been billions, but I mean, it's at least millions and millions of dollars of aid to our government. You know, because so the international media and and the banks is they really want to make this new South Africa work. Because the idea is that it should serve as the multicultural utopia, you know, the success story of racial integration and 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 um, you know, so um, so they they really want to make this work. But so if it, if it weren't for the foreign aid, we'd be gone already. Yeah, something else we 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 need to say maybe is that uh, uh, there are uh, 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 an increasing. A lot of people who really get fed up with this situation, the increasing number of whites and even blacks who get really fed up with this situation that's going on here on the one hand. Uh, so so uh, that, that, that is nice, but uh, not a lot of them understand uh, that, that God is in control. Uh, so yes, but, but as, as from, a, from a human perspective, uh, I would agree 10 to 20 years. Uh, actually, there is another factor. There, uh, we, the revolution is third stage now. Uh, the, the, the experts on, on revolutionary warfare uh, divided up in Africa anyway in 10-year cycles. And uh, so we, we are uh, on the brink of the third stage, the third cycle, and that is the destruction cycle. So, uh, we, so if, uh, I, I, I think we would have been distracted by uh, quite a while ago if it wasn't for the aid, and I don't know how much that will uh, influence the future, but I don't see much more than, than 10 to 20 years left. Thank you. And then one last question here before we wrap up. Is there any alliance between the white English and the Boers? Uh, an alliance between the white English, like the British and the Boers? Yes. Well, uh, there, there's, you know, since uh, quite a while ago, uh, I mean, quite, say, the past 100, 150 years, there has been uh, uh, English speakers uh, who aligned them with the Boers. Uh, so that is nothing in new South in South Africa, yeah. English speakers in South Africa. So, so we, call, we call them uh, 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 the, the, We We know that and we, we are uh, befriended with them. Uh, but uh, the British uh, South Africans, uh, I, I don't see. They, 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 they are still on the liberalist agenda, and they want to uh, convince the ANC, either convince the ANC of liberalist values or try to take over the government. But I think the latest uh, move is, not, is, is, is that they realize it's impossible to take over the, the government by, by uh, popular vote, and they and they try to convince the liber the ANC of liberalist values that that's their solution for the problem. I uh, in terms of the British in Great Britain, I think I recall the, the B 
BNP, the British National Party, uh, launching a campaign a couple of years ago um, to raise awareness of the bird genocide. I think it was the BNP. Um, but I mean, they, uh, I'm, not, I'm not too familiar. Jamie mentioned, you know, that they're pretty much um, done and dusted, if I recall, um, as well. So I, I uh, and, and I don't know what, what the UK Independence Party's um, position is on South Africa. So at the moment, I actually, apart from Jamie himself, I, uh, I don't know about too much, too much sympathy we have from Great Britain. Okay, fair enough. Yeah. Well, I think that concludes... Yeah, that, is ahead. that uh, all the questions? Yeah, maybe I'll just, just, uh, oh. just say uh, that they, we, we do have a lot of sympathy, uh, uh, foreign sympathy. They, yeah. There's a movement, uh, apart from you guys, in, 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 uh, there's quite a, quite a lot of uh, uh, people in the United States that are, are sympathetic, and there, there's a movement in Australia... Uh, 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 there's a lot of South Africans who expatriated or immigrated to to, to Australia, uh, uh, and, and uh, the, 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 our plight is quite known there. And also in, in the Netherlands and in Belgium, yeah. uh, uh, there they, they are uh, movements that that uh, are really sympathetic and and is, is helping uh, financially and 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 otherwise. Uh, already uh, is supporting us and, and, and making the, the the world aware of the plight. Yeah, the the Flemish and Dutch nationalists are probably the most um, our most vocal international supporters. Um, they actually uh, uh, someone actually proposed in the Dutch government last year, um, you know, for the government to officially you know announce its support for the white farmers, you know, and to raise awareness. Um, of the white genocide and so on. I mean, the the proposal didn't get passed, but I mean, um, in the Netherlands and in in the Flemish nationalists, you know, the Flams belong uh, a guy like well, he's not a Christian, but Geert Wilders in the Netherlands. You know, they uh, they do openly vocally support us, and uh, I mean, we really do appreciate that. And I mean, you guys in America. Um, I know uh, people people can read a lot about our plight on faithandheritage.com. You know, our editor, uh, Nathaniel Strickland, often puts up, uh, every now and again, you know, he even puts up an article uh, on South Africa. So under the category South African Rhodesia on Faith and Heritage, uh, people can read a lot about, about our history, our contemporary situation, and our plight, yeah. Excellent. Yeah, please check out faithandheritage.com for Addie's writings and good information about these topics. Well, thank you so much, gentlemen. I'm sorry about the time zone problem. Uh, if you guys, yeah, are... no, yeah, we're sorry as well. Sorry. Yeah. Oh yeah, it, it happens. And anytime you want to come back on here in the future to share any more information, there's an open invitation. So thank you. Thank you very much, Christian. Thank yeah. you very much, Christian. I thank the Lord and uh, for the opportunity and for the work you're do, doing. Yeah. Th thank you so much. It means a lot to me. July 20th, we'll have Laurel Laughlin on to talk about some kinest resources. So please come back and check us out then. Until then, we'll see you next time on TribalTheocrat.com. Mm -hmm.